where children can be raised to know about Jesus. And uh, we're also dedicating this life uh, of this child to Christ and saying, Jesus, touch this child's heart. Give this child faith so that when she grows up, she can stand up too and say, I give my life to Christ and we'll see her baptized someday through faith in Christ. So, uh, Clay and Sydney, let me ask you just a couple quick questions. Do both of you affirm that you are followers of Jesus Christ and that you have trusted in Him alone for your salvation? And do you affirm your wedding vows of lifelong love and devotion to one another? And now do you promise to provide for Macmillan's physical, emotional, and educational needs? Do you promise to raise Macmillan in a Christian home where the good news of Jesus is taught and lived out before her? And finally, most importantly, do you dedicate yourselves to pray regularly for the salvation and spiritual growth of your daughter so that someday she too might belong to the family of God through faith in Christ? And let me ask you, uh, people of South Shore Baptist Church, do you dedicate yourselves to praying for the children of this church and to living before them in such a way that they would see in our lives as adults examples of what Jesus is. If that's our desire to be that kind of church, let us say we do. do. All right, let's see if she'll let me hold her here. Hi, sweetie. Oh, hi. There's mommy. Yeah, let's pray, huh? Lord, I thank you for this beautiful little girl. I thank you for her bright eyes. I thank you, Lord, for her uh, just a sweet uh, countenance. God, I thank you for bringing her into this world. We know that every human being is a unique creation of yours that every human life is unique and made in the image of God. We thank you for this human life. Thank you, Lord, for Macmillan. We now pray your blessing on her life. We ask that right now you might fill her heart with faith, that even before she understands anything, her, uh, the, the gift of faith might be there in her heart, so that at the youngest age she might be speaking the name of Christ in faith. Lord, we pray, save her soul. Cause her to have faith in Jesus. You are sovereign over the souls of men and even of children. Lord, bless Clay and Sydney as they seek to raise this family. I pray, Lord, for all the families here who have children, grandparents who have grandchildren. Lord, would you give us wisdom, compassion, patience, and uh, righteousness in the way we raise our children? Help us, Lord. It's such a daunting task. And Lord, I pray for this church. Make us a church where children can come and learn about you and flourish in Christ. And so, Lord, we dedicate her life to you. We pray, take her and use her for your purposes. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. There you go. All right. What we want you guys to do now is our custom as we want to sing a blessing over you. And so if you could just take her down the aisle, do the, uh, the, the uh, walk of cuteness, and just let, <laughs> let everybody see her and smile. And, and we're just going to go ahead and walk, and we're just going to sing a blessing. We're going to sing Jesus Loves Me. All right, everyone ready? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Thank you. Well, let's, uh, that's okay, you can clap. Could we have the ushers come forward now and uh, receive the morning offering as we enjoy a special music 
offering to God. Here between kindergarten and second grade can be dismissed to children's church if they wish. Kindergarten to second grade, if you'd like to go to children's church, you're welcome to go. Uh, You can find that through the door over here by the piano. Would the rest of you open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. It's on page 681. Isaiah 7, on page 681, as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. For those of you just joining us, we're looking through Isaiah for about the next year, looking at the highlights. Isaiah 7. We'll start reading in verse 10. It says, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Let's pray. God, we we do long, as that song just said, long to to have a heart like Yours. We long to see You. We long to know You. All the things we sang this morning, God, are, are the longings of our hearts. We desire to know You, the living and true God. And we thank You, God, that You've sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to show us who You are. That to find You, Lord, we don't have to go in search of mystic experiences. We don't have to backpack to a high mountain in Tibet. We don't have to go to seminary for three years. We don't have to do extraordinary things. We simply have to look to Jesus. That, Lord, instead of finding You, You came and found us. We were Your stray, uh, wayward children. And, Lord, You sent Jesus to die for sinners like us. And so we thank You, God, that, that You are as close to us as the living Christ, whose Holy Spirit is among us. God, I pray that You'd uh, help us today as we study Your Word to see who You are, to trust You more. Lord, we pray that You would get bigger and bigger and bigger in our eyes and that the crises of life and the idols of this world would get smaller and smaller and smaller. That our hearts would be so satisfied in Jesus that we wouldn't need the things of this world to, to fill in the gaps. And they always fail. They always fail us. And so, Lord, give us that that water that really quenches. Give us that food that really satisfies. Lord, we thank You for today Mother's Day. I want to give You thanks for my mother. I want to give You thanks for my wife. I want to give You thanks for my mother-in-law and, and the women in my life who's, who've shaped me. Lord, we, we know that today is a, a bittersweet day for some when they think on their mothers. It's a very painful ex- memory. Some of us had mothers who frankly failed us. And so, Lord, I, I pray that today you'd, you'd give encouragement to those for whom today is just a reminder of bitter memories. 
Lord, I pray for those uh, women here who've always wanted to be a mother but aren't. And maybe they've uh, not even married and they wish they could just get married so they could have a chance at being a mother. Others, Lord, have tried and, and it just hasn't happened. And Lord, we know that you're sovereign. We know that you're the one who determines the beginning of life. And so, God, we trust you. But I, I just want to pray your blessing and encouragement on those women here who uh, just um, hurt today rather than rejoice. So, Lord, be with us. Whether we're rejoicing or weeping, whether we're struggling or triumphing, we pray that we might see more of Christ now, that Christ might fill up our vision. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today I want to look at this verse, verse 14, famous verse. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Famous verse. Uh, I thought it might be an interesting verse to study here on Mother's Day about a mother giving birth to a, a child, a son. Uh, kind of a Mother's Day sort of theme. Although I bet when you read that verse, you don't think of Mother's Day. You think of another holiday. You think of Christmas. Because this is a classic Christmas verse. The virgin being with child and giving birth to a son. But you have to remember, this prophecy was spoken 730 some odd years before the birth of Jesus. So when Isaiah spoke these words, and actually we know the, the date of this, it was 734 B.C., plus or minus a year. Okay, and I'll tell you why we know that in a few minutes. This was long before the birth of Christ. So when, when the uh, writers of, of this text, when Isaiah was speaking these words, he wasn't thinking about Mother's Day. He wasn't thinking about Christmas. He wasn't thinking about Christmas trees or colored lights. or I guess we're on Main Street and hang them, so <laughs> white lights. Uh, he wasn't thinking about... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Uh, he wasn't thinking about uh, the nativity scene. He was thinking about something different. There was a different historic context when these words were spoken. What was the historic context when these words were spoken? What was going on? I'll tell you, it was war. It was not a time of happiness and carols. It was a time of invasion, terror, war, where everything seemed to be falling apart. So what I want to do is we study this famous verse about the virgin having a child and giving birth to a son, is I want to just kind of study the whole context. And I was just amazed as I dug into this in my own study, and I hope that you will be too, to see what a rich passage this is. Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 7 to get the context of this whole situation. It says, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah... King Rezin of Aram and Pekah son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Okay, got all those names straight? Right? Uh, who are all these people? All right, three, three main characters. Ahaz, Rezin, Pekah. Poor guys, got named all these silly names, but those are their names. Somehow they managed to become king despite their names. Uh, now, now, who were these people? Well, to help you kind of keep all of them straight in your head, take out your sermon notes for a minute. This insert in your bulletin, there's a map on there. This is actually a, a, a photo I downloaded from the space shuttle. It's actual satellite image. It's, the, the detail is astounding. Uh, you, if you look on the front there where it says Isaiah, there's a close-up of, right, you've you got the land of Israel, the land of Palestine in your mind. Uh, this, is who, this is how the boundary lines used to be divided. There in the south is Judah, 
and the capital city of Judah was Jerusalem. That was one people group to the west of the Dead Sea. That's Ahaz. If you want to take a pencil, you can write in King Ahaz. That was his territory. To the north of him was the other group of God's people of Israel. That was the land called Israel, or Ephraim was another nickname for it. The capital city was Samaria, and Pekah was the king of Israel. Now north of them, north of the Sea of Galilee, was Aram, or sometimes known as Syria. And the capital city was Damascus, and the king there was Rezin. Alright, so you got that all straight? So there's Rezin and Pekah picking on Judah. That's the fight. So you'll see the, uh, see the, the lined arrows there. W what was happening was, is that Aram, led by King Rezin, and Pekah, leading, king Ez uh, leading Israel, pooled their resources together and formed an alliance and attacked Judah. And that, so th this is the context of what's happening. And of course, when they attacked, the Philistines came in like jackals around the kill, and the Edomites came in and they did some raids. So Judah, all of a sudden, uh, in 734 B.C., we know the date, was surrounded by these hostile neighbors. Now, you know, why is this going on? I mean, why are they being attacked? Behind every fight, there's always a story. There's always a, a backdrop. And there's a lot that goes into this story, and I don't really have time to go into all the historic details today. But uh, just to give you the immediate precipitating events, to give you a little more uh, background on this, flip the, the map over to the back. Another satellite photo. This is, okay, so, so there's our picture here. Now it's kind of like you just panned out. Now you're looking at the, the broader Middle East. So to the east, you'll see the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and there is Assyria, which is uh, present-day uh, northern Iraq, is what this would be today, where the Kurds live. In those days, it was the epicenter of the Assyrian Empire. And unlike Judah and Israel and Damascus, you know, which were kind of little podunk kingdoms, Assyria was a superpower in its day. It was a monster kingdom. And it was aggressively conquering the nations around it. And so what you need to know is, a few years before what happened on the front page, Assyria had come west and had uh, dove into the northern part of Palestine and stirred up trouble and conquered some people and whipped some armies. So what's happening now is, is the people in Palestine, if you could flip over the other side, uh, the Arameans, the Israelites, the Judeans, the Edomites, the Philistines, all these little peoples are like, you know, what are we going to do? If the Assyrians want to come in here again and knock us over, they could sack us very easily. So they were in big trouble. They were outnumbered. They were outgunned. So they, they said, well, let's fight and let's form an alliance. That's what this alliance was all about. So Aram and Israel, they say, we're going to form an alliance. We're going to stand up against the Assyrians so they can't just come in here and roll us. And the, the Philistines joined in, lots of people. But can you guess who was the one nation that didn't join the alliance? Judah. Judah, led by King Ahaz, said, no, we're not joining. So, Aram and Israel preemptively strike against Judah because, because you know, they don't want the Assyrians to come from the north and have to go fight the Assyrians only to have Judah attacking from the south and suddenly have a war on two fronts. They, they want just a war on one front with everyone united. So, so their idea is, look, before Assyria comes in here, we've got to go down, beat Judah, put our own puppet king on the throne there. That way we'll be unified so that when Assyria comes, we can fight against Assyria. So this is the, the international politics that were going on at the time. Uh, this is known in history as the Syro-Ephraimite conflict. It took place in 734 B.C., 
was when this uh, battle took place. This is, you know, it's one of the cool things of biblical archaeology. Uh, archaeologists have found plates and engravings, and we know this whole war took place, and you know, the Bible's confirmed in archaeology and that kind of stuff, you know, all that cool stuff. But anyway, that's the historic context. So now here's Judah, here's Ahaz. All of his neighbors have turned hostile against him. All the, the arrows on the map are pointing in toward Judah. So in verse 2, going back to the text, it says, Now the house of David, that is Judah, was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, which is another name for Israel. A lot of names to keep straight here. It's like a Dostoevsky novel. Uh, and it says, uh, So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Uh, what a wonderful image that is of being terrified. To have your heart shaken like the trees of the forest shaken by the wind. Uh, out behind my house, there's some trees, there's some big white pines, some old ones, and some conservation land. And Norwell is behind our house, and there's old uh, hardwoods back there. And I love really windy days when the wind kicks up to like 40, 50 miles an hour. And I just like to sit out back and look out the back window at the woods and see these huge, strong, tall trees suddenly doing this. You know, and so, you know, you're like, how do they not break? But they just wave in the wind. And, and that's how their hearts were. Great image of our hearts being terrified by a situation where everything seems to be going wrong, caving in. All the attack arrows are, are coming in like this. I was thinking of a time in my life when, uh, when I felt that way. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Uh, one of the uh, memories I had was when uh, my father uh, was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, some of you know, I've talked about him before. He's like in and a seven or eight year cancer survivor now. Uh, he has kidney cancer. But I remember when I first got the call like eight years ago or seven, whenever it was, and dad called us and told us what was going on. And you kind of get off the phone. And you're like, hmm, okay. Well, we're, let's deal with this. And you're kind of tough about it. But you know, as the day goes on, you, you start feeling like this. And by night, when you're laying in bed, you're just like, you know, what if? What if this happens? What if that happens? What are we going to do? And you start mapping out all the scenarios and all the, you know, it looks like the Tigris Euphrates River drawing. It's just all these possible scenarios. You're trying to figure out what's going to happen and your heart just becomes like a tree in the wind. It's being blown about. And, and uh, if you've ever had some life-challenging experience like that, maybe you're going through one right now and you just feel so uh, terrified and weak and that's how everybody felt. Because all of a sudden, all the neighbors around Judah were attacking. And Judah stood alone like an island being uh, swamped by a hurricane. That's where Judah was. And so it's into this midst, verse 3, go back to the Bible now, that Isaiah comes. It says, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub. But they just did not have the knack for names in those days. I mean... I bet that kid got picked on, you know, prophet's kid, Jerob, you know, whatever. So, so they go out to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. God says, say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezim and Aaron and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. You know, that's what they're saying. Let's go in there. Let's conquer Judah. Let's put our own puppet king on the throne. Let's tear it apart like lions tearing apart a zebra's carcass. 
But verse 7, this is what the sovereign Lord says. That's what those guys said, but I'm going to tell you what God says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. And here's the key verse. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. This is the bottom line issue, Ahaz. Will you trust God and His Word or not? It's very simple. It's a very complex situation. It takes maps and charts to explain it. Bottom line though, this is the real issue, Ahaz. Will you trust God and His Word or not? That's what it's all about. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you won't stand at all. See, from Ahaz's perspective, Ahaz's perspective, you, you know, he was worried about all the details. Like, okay, this king is coming, that king is coming. They're getting really, you know, these kings are coming in. I'm scared. What are we going to do? Okay, we've got to make preparations for a siege. We've got to get the armies in place. We've got to make sure the troops are mustered. And he's going around handling all these practical things. And Ahaz is saying, Isaiah is saying, don't worry about it. God's going to beat these armies. You don't have to worry. You just have to have faith. And Ahaz is saying, you know, faith, faith. Yeah, look, this is not time for religion. We've got to get practical here. We've got a war to fight. We've got enemies to defeat. And from Ahaz's perspective, the, the crucial issue was fighting the war and protecting himself against the enemies. And God was kind of small. That was back, back there. Out here was the, the crisis. But a Isaiah is saying, no, no, you got it totally backwards, Ahaz. The big thing is God... The little, tiny, puny, don't worry about it thing is the crisis. It's no big deal. I mean, look what God says about these kings. Hebrew language is so wonderful with its vivid imagery. Look at verse 4. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. You know, that's all they are. They're just smoldering stubs. You could just go... Oh, you know, God's saying, look, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wet my fingers and extinguish it. I'm going to pick up these two guys and blow them out. That's it. Don't worry about it. Because from God's perspective, these two hostile kings are nothing. They're small. They're insignificant. What is great is God and what He can do. So Isaiah, you've got to flip your perspective, or Ahaz, you've got to flip your perspective around. Put your trust in God. And I think the exact same issue faces us as Christians whenever we enter times of crisis. If you're a Christian and you're going through a time of crisis, or whenever you do, there's one key issue underneath it all. Will we trust God and His promises and His Word or not? That's it. That's what it's all about. You know, why is this happening to me? Why, why is this occurred? I can't believe it. And then that happened, and then I thought well, that was bad enough, and then this happened. You know, what, what's going on, God? It's like, it's simple. Trust God. I mean, I don't want to oversimplify life, but that's the underlying spiritual issue, whether or not I will trust God. Will I believe that God loves me as a Christian, that God sent His Son for me, that God is there for me, or not? That's it. And if I trust God, then I will obey God. But when I start disbelieving God, then I will start disobeying God. And that's what happens. We trust God, we obey Him, we disobey God when we don't uh, believe in what he has to say. You know, that's what happens when you find out your dad has cancer. You have to decide, will I trust God or not? Uh, that's what happens when you find out you have cancer or whatever disease or whatever ailment. 
It comes down to that fundamental issue. That's what happens when you lose your job. That's, that, that's the key issue when your kid is you know, doing terrible in school and you don't know how to help your kid and, and they keep falling behind and you're working with counselors but you can't figure it out. That's what happens when another month goes by and another month goes by and you can't get pregnant. And you wonder, what is happening? Why is this occurring to me? And we start wondering, did I do something wrong, God? Have you left me? Do you not love me anymore? And it's like, no. You just have to trust Him in that moment. You are in the, the crucible of faith. You are in the moment of the faith test. Will you stand firm in your faith in God or not? The fundamental issue. Everything else is just the, the, the context that makes that faith crisis come to life. So God is calling us to be a people who trust Him, even in the darkness, to believe that He loves us, that He is our God, that He has good plans for us, that He has not let anything into my life as His child that, that, he, that he hasn't planned for and isn't going to use for my good. And that's when you have to trust who God is and what He said. But the beautiful thing about God is He doesn't just ask us to have bare faith. He gives us reasons and evidences to trust Him. That's how kind our God is. He's not just like a drill sergeant who's like, drop and give me 20 faith push-ups, son. You know, just yells at us and, and screams at us and says, come on, have faith, have faith, have faith. He's a good God. He's kind. He's loving. And He gives us evidences and reasons to have faith as well. He gives us a good reason to trust Him. He gives signs. He gives signs. And so in verse 10, look what God says. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. How cool is that? Could you imagine if God, through a prophet, came to you and said, Look, I know you're freaking out. I know you're going through this trial in your life, and I know you're, you're trying to trust God, but you're freaking out. So I'll tell you what, God wants to give you a sign. Pick a sign, any sign. Whatever. Lowest depths, highest heights, that's a way of saying anything. You know, that, that's a way of expressing totality. Anything you want. You want an eclipse? Pick an eclipse. You want an earthquake? Pick an earthquake. You, you, know, you want the Powerball number? Well, maybe not. But you know, any sign you want, any sign you want, pick a sign and I will give you the sign so that you will know that what I'm saying is true. Ahaz, I know you are freaking out. I know you're like a tree in the wind and I'm telling you to trust me and you're not doing it very well. So pick a sign and I'll give you the sign. I'll grant it so that you can know that I am God. And this is the way God works. God gives us evidences upon which to base and confirm our faith. I think this is really important because I think when we start talking about faith, a lot of us have a, a distorted image of what faith is. You, you know, we, we kind of have two boxes in our minds. There's reason and then there's faith. You know, some of us think that way. Some of us who are scientifically trained. You know, there's science and then there's belief. And, and they're two separate worlds. And, and when you're in the science world, there's logic and reason and evidence and proof. And when you're in the faith world, you kind of turn your brain off and plug your ears and close your eyes and just say, I just believe, I just believe. You know, and you click your heels together. There's no place like heaven, you know, or whatever. And you just kind of, you just hope. You just hope there's something. And so we have these two boxes in our minds. But man, that is a totally false dichotomy. Because biblical faith is something like in the middle here. It's in the middle. It's what I would call uh, reasonable faith. God never just tells us to trust Him without giving us good reasons to do so. He's given us evidences. He's given us signs and proofs. 
He wants us to know that there's a reason. Now, do you still have to take a step of faith? Yes. You still have to take a step of faith. But there's good reasons for doing so. It's not blind faith. God never asks blind faith of us. He asks for a reasonable faith. I mean, take the most basic of question of faith. Do you believe there's a God? This is, let's start with you know, the, ba- the basic building block. Do you believe there's a God out there? Is there really a God? And you go, well, I'm not sure. Well, He's given you some good reasons to believe there's a God. Walk out the door. Look around. Look at the beauty of the world. Look at the intricacy, the complexity of this world. Uh, go outside and find an ant. You know, walk around the sidewalk. Like, we should all just leave the church now and go out and go find ants. You know, that'd be cool. There's a whole church out on the sidewalk looking around. People wonder what kind of weird cult we are. And, you know, find, find an ant and hold that little ant on your finger and let it walk around. And I want you to just look at that ant and I want you to think about the breathtaking complexity of that ant's body and brain. I mean, that ant is like way more complex than the most complex supercomputer we have. That's a reason to believe that there's a designer. Now you say, but it doesn't prove it. You're right, it doesn't prove it. It could be there because of some random cosmic belch. You're right. It could be. That's possible. That's a possible explanation. So I'm not proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's a God, but I am saying that there is a reason, there are reasons to believe and to take that step of faith. It's not blind faith. You're not not irrational and stupid and and unintellectual to believe that there could be a God. It's a reasonable assumption. And I might also add that if you look at that ant and you say, no God, you have also taken a step of faith. That to be an atheist is not a scientific, rational position. It is as much a faith position as to be a Christian. In fact, I would argue, and it's my own opinion, that being an atheist takes a lot more faith. And I tell atheists this when I talk to them. I say, you know, I admire your faith. You have great faith as an atheist. You have an amazingly faith-filled religion. That you would look at this whole world and say, despite all this, I believe there's no God. Wow, I admire your faith. I hope I can have faith like you someday. Anyway, and then, you know... So, yeah, we sort of stopped there. But um, the point is... What is the point? The point is, when God asks you and me to trust Him, when God says, trust me in the crucible of testing, He doesn't just ask for blind faith. He gives evidences. He loves us. And He gives good reasons. We still have to take a faith step. Yes, you have to. But it's based upon things that we know about who God is and what He's done in the past and the kind of God He is. Based upon what we know, we take a step of faith into the unknown. That's reasonable faith. And that's what God asks Ahaz to do. He says, look Ahaz, I know you're struggling. I know this is freaking you out, so I'm going to give you a sign. So you know that I'm a trustworthy God. But look at what happens in verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put God, put the Lord to the test. Now, at first blush, that looks like he's some kind of really pious guy. Like, oh, no, I'm not going to test God. I am, you know, I'm going to have faith in Him. I'm not going to ask for a sign. But really, it's a false piety. It's false piety. It's fake. He's not really that pious. Uh, the fact is, Ahaz has already decided at this point not to trust God. It's like Judas at the table. He's already made his deal with the devil. Ahaz has already made his deal And who did he make the deal with uh, from history? The Assyrians. What Ahaz does is instead of trusting God, he sends envoys to Assyria. We know this from history. And he says, Assyria, bail me out. I'll be your servant, Assyria. Just come down here and whoop my enemies. And and Assyria does. 
And we know from history, in fact, they, they've uncovered archaeological um, writings from the, the king at this time of Assyria who lists the tribute taken from Ahaz, king of Judah. So we know from history outside the Bible that, that he capitulated to um, the, the Assyrians. But the point is, he's already, he's already lost faith. He doesn't have faith. So when he says, I will not put the Lord to the test, you know, it's kind of phony. Because the last thing he wants is another reason to change his mind. And Ahaz doesn't want a sign, because if God does a miraculous sign, then that means Ahaz has got to change his mind and stop trusting the Assyrians. He doesn't want anyone to, to challenge him on that, so he goes, he kind of like, you know, strikes a pose, like, oh no, I'm too holy to ask for a sign. But it's, it's a f- fake piety. So, verse 13, Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Fine, Ahaz. I'm going to give you a sign anyway. You don't want it. You're playing, playing this game. Okay, fine. No. Here's a sign. I'm going to give you a sign. So that even if you don't believe, the other people around are going to hear this and they're going to know that I am a trustworthy God and that I can be relied upon in times of crisis. And so here's the sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So here's the sign. Look, Ahaz, there's going to be this woman. It says virgin in your Bibles here. Actually, a better Hebrew translation is something like young woman of a marriageable age. It's not, in Hebrew, it's not technically a virgin. It's more like a, a maiden. Uh, it's, it's a woman who's never been married but is at the age to be married and is ready to be married, who, of course, in that culture would also have been a virgin because of the sexual mores of their culture. They didn't you know, sleep around and stuff. They, basically, when you hit puberty as a girl, then you're ready to be married and you're married off. So, so you know, a, a young maiden would probably be a virgin. So it's something like a young maiden who logically would be a virgin. She's going to have a child, a son. She's going to name him... Emmanuel. And before this kid's very old, guess what? Those two kings are going to be dead. So that's it. Now, who is this woman? We don't know. Who was this boy in those days? We don't know. You know, we, we don't know who this person was. So there are some scholars who think it was a royal child born to King Ahaz. Other scholars think, oh no, this was uh, I, Isaiah's wife and, and Isaiah's son. You know, but you know, ultimately, we, we don't know who this kid was. We just know there was a kid born. But the important thing is, I think, is the child's name. The child's name. That's the meaning of the whole sign. What's the child's name? Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Im is the Hebrew preposition for with. Nu is the uh, pronoun, first person plural, so it would be like we or us, with us. And then El is God like El Shaddai, El Elyon, any of those El names. So with us God, or we'd say in English, God is with us. The whole point of the sign is that God is with us. Ahaz, you don't have to be afraid of these two kings. And the reason you don't have to be afraid is because God is with us. He's with us. And if God is with us, who can be against us? You know the old cliche, one person plus God equals a majority. You've heard that cliche. It's true. If you're one person, you have God with you, you can stand up against a thousand people. And if ten people have God with them, they can stand up against a million people. 
Because when God is with you, who can be against you? If God's behind you, what do you have to fear? That's our God. I think sometimes we think of God as like a far-off dude. Yeah, maybe he's there, maybe he made the universe. But you know, like the watchmaker, he wound it up and then he, he put the clock, the watch down and he went on a journey or something. And So we're here on planet Earth and we're kind of figuring it out for ourselves. No, no, no. The same God who made the heavens and the earth is also Emmanuel. He's God who is close to us in the times of crisis and trial. And so, you know, just like Moses was able to stand up against Pharaoh because God was with him, and just like Joshua could stand up against the the people of Cana because God was with him, so Ahaz, guess what? God's with you. Whether you believe him or not, he's here. And these two kings, they're done. They're done. Don't worry about it. They're dead. You just trust me because I am with you. We can trust God because He is the God who's not only up there, He's also the God down here. Now, of course, this prophecy, which was fulfilled 734 B.C., had a second fulfillment, a fuller fulfillment, a larger fulfillment. That's often how prophecy is in the Old Testament. You think you got it nailed down, you think you got it figured out down to a science, and then something weird happens. And, and God's, God, is, God is creative in the way He fulfills His prophecy sometimes. It's, it happens in surprising ways. And, and God does and wonderful things. It's like prophecy is alive. And the second you try to grab it and squeeze it, it squirts out your hand. And, and that's how it is here. There's a, a unique fulfillment to this prophecy. So turn over to the book of Matthew in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 in the New Testament it's on page 955, 955 in that pew Bible, Matthew 1.18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. She would have been totally disgraced in those days if people found out she was pregnant. Verse 20, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means in Hebrew, Yeshua means to save because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so this prophecy has, it, has another fulfillment. It, it just goes on. And it's a bigger fulfillment. And, and that, that child back then was just a little foreshadowing of the child who was to come. And this child isn't just named Emmanuel. He is Emmanuel. He is literally God in human flesh walking among us. When you saw Jesus, you were looking at God, the Creator Himself, in human flesh. He was literally God with us. And so... If Ahaz could trust God, given the sign of Emmanuel in his day, how much more so should we trust God now that He has given us the ultimate sign, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the true Emmanuel? How much more so should we trust Him? 
So when you're a Christian and you're going through a time of trial, like, I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know. You know, this has happened and that's happened and you know, all that stuff. Has God forgotten about me? Did I do something wrong? Does God hate me? Maybe God's not paying attention. Maybe He's busy with some of His other kids. You know, all these thoughts go through our head and you wonder, can I trust God? God, give me a sign that you can, I can trust You. And God says, you have a sign. His name is Jesus. And He is the ultimate conclusive evidence that I am your God and that I am with you. Look to that cross. You can know that God loves you. You say, are you sure God loves me? Look at the cross. Jesus died for us. It's the ultimate sign. And based upon who Jesus is, we can put our feet on the ground and face anything that comes our way knowing that God is with us. Jesus is the ultimate proof. But He's not just a sign for those of us who are followers of His. He's also a sign for anyone here who's kind of on the fence. Maybe you're, you're like, yeah, I don't know. I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. I've been kind of weighing it in my mind. I, I want to know and I'd like to know God, but I just have my doubts. I'm not sure. And when I look at my life, I, I think, boy, I've done a lot of things. I don't know if God could accept me. I don't know if God could really forgive me. And I would say, look to the sign that God has given you. Jesus Christ. What's His name mean? Jesus means He saves. And Jesus can save you too. Christ can rescue you from whatever it is that you're facing. And He can save your soul. So believe in Him. And if you have that moment of doubt, just keep looking at Jesus. Keep looking at Christ. Look at the evidence that God has given you. And there's even more applications than that. We don't have time to get into them all. But let me just list one and then we'll, uh, we'll close here. One more application. Look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Jesus is not only the sign for us as Christians in the midst of crisis. Jesus is not only the sign for unbelievers to see Jesus and believe and be saved. But I think Jesus is also the sign for confidence in the tasks that He's given us, in our calling. Look at verse 18 of chapter 28. Famous passage called the Great Commission. Jesus' last words in Matthew. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them them to obey everything that I've commanded you. God is calling every single one of us who are Christians to go out and speak and live the light of Jesus. And you know who it is you need to talk to. You know who it is. There's maybe someone in your work, someone at school. I have people in my neighborhood I'm thinking of, people at the gym I'm thinking of. I mean, there's faces. You know in your life who needs Christ, don't you? You know who they are. And God wants to use you. He's calling you to go out and speak the name of Jesus. And, and I know, you're like me. You're like, you know, uh-oh. You know, the tree blowing in the wind. I, well, I'm not sure about that. And I've told you, I've confessed this to you before, I'm a bad evangelist one-on-one. I just never think of the right thing to say, and I'm always that guy who is like, oh, why'd I say that? You know, so I'm nervous about evangelism, and, and I'm like, my heart's like this in the wind, but God's calling us to do it. Not only that, God is calling our church to, to penetrate the south shore of Jesus Christ, to saturate the, the south shore with Jesus Christ, with the gospel. God's calling us to plant churches around here. Uh, we've got to see more churches. People, we need at least four to five more strong, healthy, Bible-believing churches in Hingham. Let alone Norwell, let alone Hanover. I mean, in all of these towns, we are not, uh, we're too easily satisfied with what we have. We need to see God plant some more churches. 
And you're like, okay, pastor, that sounds great, but you know, I'm busy and we're already busy. And I look at my own life and I go, gee, I'm, I'm swamped. I've got four kids now and sermons to write. You know, how can I even think about planting churches? God goes, okay, I'm going to give you something else to think about. Not only do we need to reach people and plant churches and see the South Shore reached, but I want you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I'm like, okay, God, well, you know, I quit. I, how can we ever do this? This calling you give us is so huge, it's so great. How could we ever do it? My heart's going, I'm so overworked, I'm so stressed. How could we ever do it? How could we possibly reach the south shore and the ends of the earth for Christ? And here's the answer at the end of verse 20. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age.